Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Iyer, and we have a draft to talk about. Maybe technically have two drafts to talk about, and really we have two drafts to talk about and how they relate to one another, because the NFL draft happened this weekend, and aside from a couple clunky spots, I thought it went off pretty well for a virtual draft. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it went as well as I think you could have hoped it would have gone. And to be quite honest, I kind of liked it a, a little bit better than the actual draft that the, that's typically held with everyone in person. Uh, minus the, the whole Roger Goodell trying to appeal for booze. I thought that was just very much overplayed. <laughs> yes. But, but really, I thought the draft went over quite well. It was kind of nice being able to see, uh, you know, different prospects celebrate at home with their families. Uh, you know, having that kind of atmosphere. I, didn't mind it. I thought it also after they got through the first few picks because it really seemed like the Cleveland, you know, um, I should say, sorry, the Cincinnati Bengals really spent their sweet time kind of taking Joe Burrow. And I was a little nervous when it took like 45 minutes for the first three picks to go off. Right. Uh, but after that, I thought it started to move. It was very nice. It was very nice being able to kind of cut into all these different scenes. I thought it was very well produced. And I wouldn't hate it if that was kind of the new normal for how the NFL draft was going to be done and how other leagues could really do their draft. Yeah, I, you know, while I was watching it, I was kind of imagining, like, you know, and, and, you know, some of this obviously I think would depend on what the league is willing to do. But, you know, I, I think back to, like, you know, what what is interesting about drafts and, and you know, there, obviously there's certain things you can't replicate. The, the the fan side of things is just not replicatable. You're not going to have a great walk across the stage moment. But it creates the opportunity to show you some things that you don't get to see otherwise, like the Bill O'Brien meltdown when a trade seemed to have fallen apart on him or something. Uh, something didn't go as, as he expected. Um, and I think moments like that are opportunities. I mean, I loved when they showed Gruden in his in his office and you could see the whiteboard and you couldn't quite squint enough to make out any of the names or the order, but it just adds a little intrigue. I, I love kind of the, the tease of being able to watch these guys, even if you're not actually getting a ton of information out of it. Yeah, I mean, you weren't really getting a, a lot of info from it, and you're not getting necessarily the same kind of real-time breakdown uh, that you would get with right. all those guys that, you know, right there at the draft stage, and, and you get Mo Kuyper giving his takes that uh, are always very hit or miss. You don't get the walk across the stage, and I know that can be a big moment for a lot of these guys who, you know, have worked their whole lives towards getting to that point. But that being said, I do... I do think there was something to, you know, about the atmosphere of the way you could watch these people celebrate with the people that they care about the most. And again, it's, it's, it's not always like that on, on draft day. I don't think you always get that level of intimacy. And I thought it was kind of a really nice overall feel for how that draft kind of went over. And ultimately, you know, you can, you can kind of squabble about how the Lions did. I know some people were happier with, uh, what they did, I think PFF or Pro Football Focus gave them an A uh, for their draft. Max, I don't know what you thought about them. We we said we would talk about it a little bit, so we have to do something. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think I thought what most people thought, which was that they should trade down if possible, and who knows the degree to which it was possible. Um, but I think at the end of the day, whenever you walk out of the draft with the player uh, who, by most accounts, was a – apt value at that spot who also fills one of your biggest needs i think that's a fine day and they got you know i i didn't love the going to the running back position at the top of round two but that was a guy who was mocked in the first round by just about everyone so 
I, I liked their draft. I, you know, there were certain things that I you could you can tweak here and there, but at the end of the day, I thought they got pretty good value, and and certainly they they made themselves better. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to really argue a lot with what they did. I mean, I I kind of nitpicked when the the DeAndre Swift pick came in yeah. at thirty five. I thought there was a lot of other guys, particularly safeties, edge rushers, linebackers, all available that. You know, again, you look at the Lions defense, they sorely need a lot of those guys. And, you know, with the way the NFL has kind of trended over the last few years and kind of the minimization of the importance of the running back value, save for Derrick Henry, uh, I thought the Lions could have done a little bit better at that spot, potentially uh, going with a guy like Epinesa, uh, who was available, great edge rusher. At the end of the day, I think when you're watching football, it's come down to how can I impact the passing game, whether it's tools on offense, like wide receivers, tight ends, offensive line, or the quarterback itself, uh, or it's how can I rush the passer or provide coverage on the passer with, again, defensive ends, with with your linebackers in coverage, and, and ultimately your safeties and corners. And so the Lions, Lions did reasonably well. A guy like DeAndre Swift, again, even as good as he could be or right. may be, ultimately isn't going to be a huge factor in the offense, even if they're the best player available. I mean, you look at a guy like Saquon Barkley. Right. Everyone knows how talented he is. He can't make the Giants better. It's only when they turn it over, you know, to Daniel Jones and, and they get some somewhere with their offense, but he can't fix that offense because this isn't a running league. But that being said, the Lions did well with really all their other picks. I think you can't really fault them for taking Jeff Okuda at the top. I think I personally would have just taken Tua and tried to force the Dolphins' hand uh, because, again, Stafford's getting up there in age. He's kind of struggled a little bit with injuries. But, hey, not a bad virtual draft for the Lions. No, and I, I agree with you that I thought pass rush, maybe they waited too long. I thought they waited way too long on receiver, but um, we'll see. I mean, I, the, the receivers who I thought were good fits for them went in the first round. So at some point you, uh, you, you, you try to take the player who you think is going to make you the best and – uh, I certainly do not know nearly enough about uh, college football players to know, you know, I, I mostly know what uh, what Dane Brugler tells me to know. So <laughs> it's fair enough. I mean, uh, you know, Jeff Okuda, I mean, the wide receiver the Lions did end up taking Jeff Okuda said it was the, the best wide receiver he faced in college football, even though yeah. he may, may not grade out as well from a, you know, physical attribute standpoint at the end of the day. Okuda said he was the best guy he went up against and would have to make technical changes to his game plan. So, hey, you know what? We'll see. Time will tell. But some people seem to like what the Lions did, and, and I'll kind of count out of what they what they think. I will say the uh, the Big Ten football schedule does not exactly give you a murderer's row of, uh, of receivers to contend with. But, you know, nonetheless, it, it's certainly still a compliment. And, you know, they played they played Clemson this year, so. Yeah, I mean, they, they played some people, and they, they saw some good, you know, wide receivers. Uh, obviously, you know, Clemson's always had some decent uh, receivers, and and even Michigan, you know, with Donovan Peoples-Jones, he's a, he's a good receiver. So you get some you get to play a little bit of talent there, but ultimately, yeah, we'll see. But, uh, you know, Max, I'm curious. You know, now that we've seen a major NFL league and arguably the most important league in North America go off uh, with a virtual draft, can the NHL pull this off, given what we talked about in the last episode where they were speculating that the draft may happen in June, maybe before the season even concluded? Yeah, certainly I think the idea of moving the draft up is is an interesting one. And I, I absolutely think they can pull it off, for the record. Like, I think, the, I think the way that this NFL one went, 
gave me a lot of confidence that the NHL would have the ability to do this. The, the thing that I think would be very important that they try to mimic to whatever extent possible is, you know, the moments that you're able to kind of forget that there's anything weird about the draft are when there's highlights played and an analyst talking over the, their highlights. And I think the, the, the TV prevalence of college football maybe makes it a little easier to do, but I don't see any reason the NHL can't compile good enough highlight reels to, to make that a reality. And I think there's enough intrigue and certainly people want sports to watch right now. And, um, I, I think they can pull it off. I, you know, I think technically there were not many hitches other than the occasional maybe, you know, question that someone didn't hear or something like that. But I, I didn't think it technically, I didn't notice too many glitches. Yeah, I mean, as long as you're not Bill O'Brien slamming right. down his phone. But I liked uh, that. You know, like, I, mean, I, I, I want that. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed seeing Cliff Kingsbury's, uh, yes. you know, uh, house that he's just trying to roast all of us on because clearly that was the most magnificent thing. And maybe a, a James Bond movie will be shot there in the near future. I'm Absolutely. not so sure. Uh, you know, I, th- I think the NHL could pull it off. There's a couple of just logistical things that I think I'm a little nervous about how it would work. And the first is that not everybody's in North America. Not everyone's in the United States. And so when you come into time differences, uh, differences in technology, are you going to be able to pull off that same intimate aspect? Because a 7 p.m. start in the United States on the East Coast is, you know, 1, 2, 3 a.m., depending on where you're at in Europe, sometimes even a little bit later if you're in the far-reaching parts of Russia, uh, are you going to be able to logistically get that same atmosphere or intimacy? I mean, I'm sure it's the NHL draft, and if you've got guys that are going to go in the first round and, and they're in those leagues, I'm sure they'll stay up. But that that's a little bit um, you know intriguing for that's me is point. how that gets pulled off. I mean, do you do the draft in the middle of the day and, and potentially you know lose some of your Canadian and, and American audience? I, I don't know. That would be the interesting uh, piece for me, or do you all do it all pre-recorded and then release it at a set time in in North America so that people can watch? Again, great question, no idea. Um, but I also wonder, just communication-wise, like, are you going to be able to get in touch with people across the world, not necessarily across the United States, to pull off things like this? That's my only concern from a logistical standpoint. Um, but that being said, I think it's one that. If you prepared enough uh, and you've got all the pieces put in place, I still think you could do it and, and make it a success. But we do know the NHL's tendency for uh, you know having these kinds of glitches and hiccups on, on draft day. So I, I'd be curious to see if it could really be pulled off. Do you buy the conspiracy theory that the the actual drafting was done prior to the broadcast? Well, that, that's the thing. You know, for the NFL, I don't think it had to be done. And I don't know that it could have been done without leaking. Just right, without leaking, because we saw what happened with the NHL just last year, right? Yeah. I mean, we we had the the lottery was done a few hours prior to the televised show, and the NHL accidentally, and I think it, I don't think it was North America, I think it was somewhere else, but accidentally published the lottery odds, and someone screen capped it, sent it out, and sure enough, those were the lottery odds. I don't know that that could have happened without it being leaked in, a, in an environment like this. I just, I don't buy it, particularly the negotiations of trades, um, you know, being able to phone up all these different people. I just, I don't see that happening. Now, again, I also think you had a lot fewer trades than 
Uh, you know, most people were anticipating, particularly in the first round. And I think that kind of speaks to the fact that, yeah, this was really happening live. Um, and I also think the glimpses of outside that you got kind of indicated yeah. the times, uh, the time of day for people. So I don't buy that the NA, uh, the NFL draft was not live, but I do think the NHL should actually consider not doing it live <laughs> and airing it later simply because I, I do think you're going to run into a lot of these technological issues with coordinating trades, uh, with being able to get in touch with people and then just having the intimacy factor uh, for some of these draftees that may be scattered all across the world. Yeah, ultimately, like, I guess you don't have to tell the players they've been drafted until you the really broadcast. don't. No. I mean, they're, they're going wherever you draft them. That's yeah. the way this works. Um, but it's more, I think that was part of what made the NFL draft such a success was you were able to have yeah. IT set up, you know, cameras that cut to these prospects that celebrate with their families. You got great moments out of it. You got moments being able to cut into some of the, you know, the coaching staffs and, and, you know, seeing, uh, Mike Vrabel's kids doing God knows what in the background and, and Sean McVay kind of slamming down a phone. You get Bill O'Brien slamming phones, you know, all that kind of stuff, I think is what made that broadcast successful and had so many millions of people tune in. And I do wonder how much of that you lose by not being able to incorporate some of those prospects just given time differences if you try to air it live. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I, I do think, you know, the the long you know how the second day of the draft goes. The second day of the draft is fast, and you might not even be able to do it with at that point with those rounds. Um, but that's at least earlier in the day. Uh, and then I think the first the first round guys maybe you can kind of you know you can know within uh, I don't know a range of ten to fifteen guys who maybe accidentally stay up not to get picked, and that's a bummer. But you know I. I think it could be done. I don't know if it's like a perfect world. And it's a good point that like, you know, IT wise, you have to make sure that like, are you going to mail them cameras? Are you going to recommend, you know, a, a, a TV station there or something? Have, give them a camera. I don't know how that works. Yeah. And I mean, let's just, I mean, let's just put it this way. The importance of those players, how much more endearing was Moritz Sider to the Detroit Red Wings oh, yeah. when you saw the shock sure. look on his face and then the way he walked down the stairs, kind of yeah. like coming back the stairs, you need that reaction to be able to pull this off with, you know, that same kind of effect that the NFL got. And then the other pieces, can Gary Bettman pull off what Roger Goodell did? I think everyone was totally behind Roger Goodell as as that second day wore on. He goes from sitting or from standing <laughs> to sitting to slumped over, and you're wondering how many maybe old fashions he's had at that point. But, you know, I don't know that Gary Bettman can pull that off either. So, I'm very curious to see how the NHL would do something like this. Well, and also they could have teams make make some of those picks too. Like I think that was an element that like that I was thinking of is like restrictions may look a little different. If, if let's say this is in June, restrictions may look a little different. You may not have to have um, the coach and the GM and the scouting director all in different houses, potentially different cities. You might be able to have it at a true war room by then. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, with a lot of states, at least in the U.S., considering easing up some social distancing and some stay-at-home orders, you may be able to put at least a handful of people in a room together and, and get maybe a better insight to how these NHL draft war rooms look. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, anything else off the draft you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think the other big piece of news that came out since we last recorded is, uh, you know, Bob McKenzie kind of throwing out that, one of the ideas the NHL is speculating about for the draft lottery 
is that we revert back to pre-2012 rules, which for those of you that, that remember, the way the, the draft lottery worked there was a team could only move up a max of four spots. They could only move up um, or move down a max of one spot, and you only had one winner. And so what that effectively meant was the team that was in the best position, so Detroit right now, or the team that had the worst record, they would have a 25% chance of winning, you know, the draft lottery outright and winning that first first overall pick. But they also had an additional 23.2% chance that a team outside the top five would win the draft lottery. And because of the rule that a team can only move up a max of four spots, if team six wins the draft draft lottery with their 6.2% odds, they can only move up to pick two. And so what that effectively means is Detroit's lottery odds go from 18.8% at first overall to 48.2% at first overall. And from second overall, where it's at 14.4% right now, it goes up to 51.8%, and that's the lowest Detroit could pick. And so at this point in time, you'd be saying, all right, Detroit, you either are getting Alexi Lafreniere or Quentin Byfield, and it's effectively a coin toss. We talked last time about how, at least I thought, I, I think you agreed, that it's a little silly to be so worried about a team winning the lottery in the Cup. And not only is that a worry, it's, it apparently, I assume that's the impetus for something like this, could lead to a result where, where teams are just saying, hey, let the bad teams have it. I mean, if you're the Red Wings, you're all in on this, right? I mean, I'm assuming it's Steve Eisman who's pitched this idea. <laughs> like, if, if you're the Red Wings, you're absolutely saying yes. I am 100% behind this because, you know, the funny thing about this rule was this rule was in effect from, or this kind of lottery system was in effect from 2000 to 2012. And effectively the team in 2010, or sorry, 2009, 2010, 2011, the worst overall team won first overall. When the Oilers in 2012 in the second position win the lottery, that's when the rules actually changed for the first time to where Anyone, the, the lottery winner can actually move up to first. And it was like that until 2015, until the Oilers managed to do it again. And then at that point, it changed to, all right, now we have our current system where we're going to basically punish these bad teams and kind of go full anti-tanking. But now, if, if what Bob McKenzie has suggested is, is actually the case, and if this ultimately comes to fruition, I mean, if you're a Detroit Red Wings fan, you're doing absolute cartwheels down the street. I mean, you're doing cartwheels down Woodward. I think it might be snowing or getting close to that right now. You'd still consider doing it if that happens. When it came out, you and I were texting about, like, is Iserman trying to do a Jedi mind trick or something on the on the rest of the league? Because from Detroit's perspective, like, we've talked about how, you know, Alexi Lafreniere has separated himself as the number one. But the uncertainty still that you can minimize by potentially capping your floor at number two overall uh, that takes the Red Wings pick here from being like a a pick that's like gonna be important and potentially their best prospect, likely their best prospect right away. So like, it's now at a point where if you're gonna get Lafreniere or Byfield, like you're you're probably getting a cornerstone piece if that's the yeah. case. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely the case. You're now sitting there saying I've got a basically a fifty percent chance at landing Alexi Lafreniere, who's by far the best player in this draft, and. Instantly, 
probably your best player on the team by the end of the season. So, I mean, when you're saying that that's the case, and at worst, you're going to land Quentin Byfield, um, I'm not going to hear Tim Stutzel or, or Marco Rossi options at two. I don't think he can do that the way it's it's playing out right now. But if you're saying at worst you're ending up with Quentin Byfield, I mean, you're absolutely jumping for joy. These are two phenomenal hockey players, and, and really – uh, to be able to say that you're going to get one of them is just the best case scenario for Detroit. Yeah, a weird thing has happened with Byfield where I think because he had kind of maybe inched into that debate for number one going into the World Juniors and then had what I would call an expected World Juniors for a 17-year-old where he doesn't dominate, basically the same as, as Alexi Lafreniere had a year ago. Um, the, the pushback to what had become a conversation around number one almost seems to have, have made people forget how good a prospect he is. Are there, are there some questions? Sure. But like at the end of the day, this guy is a force. He can skate. He is skilled and he is a centerman. Like, and he's so young for the class and so productive. Um, I can't believe that people are introducing like legitimate doubt at number two, though. I'm not going to ever put anything past Steve Eisenman after last year. But to me, like, that's a – Byfield is still, like, a, a comfortable number two. Yeah, I mean, he's very easily a, a comfortable number two for me. I mean, you and I talked on earlier episodes this year about is it unreasonable to push Quentin Byfield into the conversation for number one overall? I think ultimately Alexi Lafreniere's performance at the World Juniors really shut that down, and, and he was just absolutely dominant. But the fascinating thing to me is, like – People really soured on Byfield after the World Juniors, and you have to remember Lafreniere was in that spot last year and basically put up the same performance. Uh, and so now Byfield, again, being almost a year younger than Lafreniere is, is doing that. And, and the funny part is people always come back and say, all right, well, it's probably related to, you know, his, his World Juniors performance and then after the way he looked afterward. I mean, one of the first games he played when he came back from the World Juniors was a two-goal, five-point performance. Right. He had a four-point performance a couple games after that, and then a couple other three-point performances there. And so the guy was honestly still scoring at the exact same rate that he was. And you're talking about this uh, w- with exactly what you said, Max. He's a six-foot-four, 220-pound center that skates really well. And we're now saying we're a little nervous about him going that too. I think it's it's just boredom at this point. He yeah. has to go number two. Even though I've said I think Marco Rossi, 10 years from now, could be the second best player from this draft class, today you have to take Quentin Byfield because, you know, in all honesty, this guy could push Lafreniere for his career. I mean, the comparisons for this guy right now from a lot of prominent people are Evgeny Malkin. And Evgeny Malkin is a Hall of Fame player. So you, you just can't, you can't pass on, on Byfield right now. Yeah, I mean, the, it, there's a, it, it, for every bit of like, there's an element of doubt because, oh, you know, he's a little younger and you, you don't have quite the sample you might want. There's also every reason on an upside standpoint to say, but like, you don't get a player like this any lower than second. You just, you just don't. I can't think of one, a player with this kind of like toolkit who would have gone later. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And, and, you know, it's interesting. Some of you may remember last year I built a statistical model that looked at, 
um, a lot of these prospects and try to project NHL point totals. Byfield came out first in my model, and not only was he first, but his point total was higher than Jack Hughes and Capo Caco, who were at the top of my model last year. So, like, this is a guy that even if he's not really there with Lafreniere at the end of the day, and again, this is adjusting for things like, you know, age and league strength and a couple other factors. But at the end of the day, Byfield is squarely an elite talent, I think, and you just can't pass on him right now. Yep, absolutely. And I, I think it's a pretty significant. Maybe we should spend a little more time talking about the fact that the, the odds for number one also go way up. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is if you're Detroit, you're, you're looking at a 50-50 shot at Lafreniere or Byfield, and that's it. You don't have to pick third. You don't have to pick fourth. You get first or second. And, and having a, you know, a 30% increase on your uh, odds at first overall is just – you're, you're, you are literally doing naked cartwheels down Woodward Avenue right now. I mean, it's, it's gotta be that. Yeah. So if you're listening and you want that to happen, I guess, uh, write a letter to your local congressman and ask for Gary Bettman's phone number. Yeah. I think that's fair. Honestly, Steve Eisenman's doing all of this already. I think, <laughs> I think he's pulled this off. It's possible. I, like, I, I would love to know, like, at some point, like, do teams realize what they're doing and, like, they're gonna guarantee the Ottawa Senators two top what two top four picks with a real possibility that's two in the top three like there's some there's some teams that you know are i'm not going to say they're tanking but are are certainly um you know expected to be perennial bottom dwellers for the next couple of years who are going to be um who are going to be the winners of, of something like that if it comes to fruition yeah i mean if you end up going with this right if you're in ottawa shoes you've got you know, two picks, the second and the third right now by standings. And so when you look at it, they've got effectively a 33% chance at first overall, right behind Detroit's 48%. And they know they can't pick any lower than fourth. Like the the worst Ottawa could do would be third and fourth, which is just mind-blowing. So you're saying, all right, at worst I'm taking, you know, Tim Stutzel and Marco Rossi at three and four or, or Stutzel and Drysdale or Rossi and Drysdale however Ottawa wants to draft it, but I've still got a one-third chance at first overall. I mean, you, if you're Detroit and Ottawa, you are heavily lobbying for this um, to happen. Yep, yep. All right, and then uh, we should probably talk about the NBA tweet that uh, came out. Adrian Wojnarowski talking about when NBA players could start uh, getting back together, and that date that he threw out was even in May when they could start to kind of have training camps Um little momentum here. Yeah, I mean, you know, we get a Woj bomb, which, uh, you know, getting one of these is always like Christmas opening your presents because he just, he just always has the insider info. And so effectively what he said is beginning on May 1st, the NBA would allow teams to open their practice That's facilities. That's true, not a training camp. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's not purely a training camp, but you can at least open your practice facilities in cities and states where the local governments have kind of relaxed the stay-at-home order. Uh, and so that is part of the pathway back to coming back because, you know, if you're able to get the practice facilities open and maybe the players can get in and, and you still continue to have decreases in cases and, and decreases in, in uh, COVID hospitalizations in those areas, then you're starting to move your way back to potentially reopening the league um, and I know that's been a big problem for a lot of NHL skaters because they've had to resort to rollerblading because 
you know, unlike the NBA where you could likely have a basketball hoop in your driveway, in your home, you can't necessarily put down an ice rink in your house as easily as that. And so I know a lot of NHL players are starving for being able to get back to ice skating and have had to resort to rollerblading and other things. So if if that's able to happen, potentially the NHL can follow suit. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that works for arenas that, um, you know, maybe practice facilities are shared. I'm not sure how many uh, NBA and NHL teams actually share practice facilities. Um, but that being the case, you know, it, it's going to be interesting. And that's potentially one path back uh, for the NHL. Yep, yep. And I, I'm curious to see, I mean, so where is it? Players are in, in one country are able to kind of gather. Is it Sweden right now? Uh, yeah, I believe Sweden has kind of taken an approach to where they're, they haven't really locked things down per se, um, but they've been a little bit more aggressive in their testing. So I think you can have some congregation in Sweden right now. So I, I think I'm, I'm interested in, in kind of players being able to kind of just even skate casually. You figure at some point, like, hockey rinks are going to open again whenever the stay-at-home orders ease up, I imagine. Like, you know, you're even if it's not like LCA right off the bat, um, you'd expect other ones to. So at, at that point, why would teams not want their players, you know, being able to play at, at the Belfour Center or at Little Caesars Arena, for example? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And, you know, it's interesting that this is brought up because, again, John Scott, you know, former NHL player, uh, you know, comes out with some weird... It'd be very interesting if John Scott is right on this, but he actually goes, well, just got word that NHL camps will begin on June 1st with European players coming back over soon. And so, you know, I don't know if, if John is kind of speculating here. I mean, he's obviously very well connected being a former NHL player, but... If you put all those timeline pieces together that potentially practice facilities open in May, training camps in June, it does kind of set the stage for uh, a potential shot to complete the season by the NHL. I thought John Scott was like a Zamboni driver or something. No, 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 no. You're uh, you're thinking of David Ayers. Oh. Zamboni driver down who, who, who beat the Toronto Maple Leafs. We should make sure that that's noted. Uh, but no, John Scott's All-Star Game MVP. Oh, yes, I do remember that. Who was the uh, – Scott Foster, that's who I'm thinking of, right? Scott, Scott Foster. Foster was an emergency backup goalie. That's what I'm Chicago thinking of. Blackhawks. Yes, that's, okay. Yeah. yeah, he came in, he made several saves for them. Uh, you know, it always comes down to the Scott Foster versus David Ayers conversation now. John Scott was 6'8". Yeah, big dude. Not very skilled, but – uh, managed to get into an NHL All-Star game and, and wins All-Star M, uh, MVP. Wow, that's a great story. Someone should write about that. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe uh, after you guys finish watching games for the Red Wings get owned, um, you should switch over to, to John Scott's All-Star MVP. Did you see that we uh, did a mea culpa for our 2009 rewatch and we did the 08 Game 6? I thought about clicking it, but then I thought it was a trap to get me to click on an article about the 09 Cup Final, so I couldn't click on it. No, it was the 08. Although I will say the 08 is not nearly as uh, as fun a game as the 09, but I'm sure better memories for, for our listeners. I mean, I can tell you where I was exactly for the 08 Cup Finals there. I was sitting on uh, my living room floor about six feet away from the television. Uh, in At moments, I was in the fetal position. In moments, I was sitting cross-legged. Uh, but when that puck kind of dribbles across the goal line um, on that last chance where, you know, the Penguins just about yeah. tie it up, um, I can definitely say I was in the fetal position there. But then 
I immediately found a computer and ordered my Stanley Cup championship hat because, uh, you know, you had to make sure you got those. And those are actually a great addition, the white ones with uh, the nice red logo in a uh, on a shield. Really, really nice. Yeah, you saw those hats everywhere. I, don't, I haven't seen one in a while, but for, for a few years there, those hats were every hockey rink you went in Michigan, someone's dad or coach was wearing that hat. Yeah, I mean, I had one, and then unfortunately I, I went on a trip to visit my aunt and uncle in Australia, and their German Shepherd ate it. So, you know what? I, I lost that hat. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Do you have a, do you have a take on uh, that game? Like, I, I, watching it, I thought you, you would have not enjoyed uh, th- that style of hockey nearly as much. I didn't even enjoy it nearly as much, and I think I like the um, some of the more boring elements of hockey a little more than you do. I think the thing about the, those Red Wings teams was I was okay with the boring elements yeah. because it was slanted in the favor, in favor. of the Red Wings. Right. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, over the last few years, we've really watched Blashill try to emulate Babcock's style of this low-event hockey, and it was very frustrating to watch because not a lot was happening, and when stuff was happening, it was the opposition doing stuff. But when you watch those Red Wings teams, particularly that 07-08 team, there weren't a lot of events happening in the game but 60% of what was happening was the Detroit Red Wings doing it. And I think you just kind of came to appreciate the skill level of Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg, particularly Henrik Zetterberg. I think this goes uh, unnoticed a lot, but Datsuk in the 07, kind of 06, 07, 08 time frame was actually, if you if you look back at the media reports on, on Pavel Datsuk then, he was kind of targeted as a guy who would disappear in the playoffs. And he was a guy that would do great in the regular season, unbelievable talent, but would just disappear in the playoffs. And this was, you know, widely spread about him to the fact uh, where Datsuk was almost traded in 2007, uh, a what if we'll talk about um, on, a, on a future episode. But I think what you really come to appreciate is how good Henrik Zetterberg was just in all facets of the game. Um, but as a Wings fan watching that game six, I absolutely loved it. But at the same time, I was simultaneously terrified because you have to remember game five, Detroit was up. They were up and they were actually getting ready to get out of here. It was 3-2. And then with 33 seconds left, freaking Adam Hall scores on this weird play that squeaks out with a puck kind of squeaks out right in front of the net and he scores with 33 seconds left to tie that game up and then Peter Sikora scores very very late but what a lot of people forget was Marc-Andre Fleury in that game five makes an unreal toe save on on Michael Samuelson uh, on a one-timer it's a two-on-one I believe it's the first overtime, if I'm remembering correctly. And actually, you know, Max, if, if you're talking about going back and rewatching old games, one game I will allow to be rewatched is that game five, even though the Red Wings ultimately lose it in triple overtime when Peter Sikora scores. The Red Wings, between the third period and that first overtime, I want to say outshot Pittsburgh. It was like 27 to five. And Mark Andre Fleury was just unreal including multiple monumental saves and and that's why you're just sitting there watching game six and you're absolutely terrified when the penguins are pressing in those last 30 seconds and, and again ultimately the puck goes across the goal line hosa can't finish and the rest is history i think i'm about done watching those two teams play though 
You know, like I, I've now seen a couple of different games there. The first one was a great game. This one was less exciting, but obviously still a, a nice moment. It was really funny to watch Chris Chelios lift the cup at the end there and be like, oh my God, he's 46. This must have been his last season. Nope, he played two more years. Um, but I think the next like old game I want to rewatch would be something from like the O2 run. Yeah, so if you're going to do that, you have to watch both Game 6 and Game 7 of the 2002 Western Conference Finals. Uh, you have to watch Game 6 for the uh, Statue of Liberty moment, uh, which will never be forgotten by any Red Wings fan who watched that game. And then in, in, in Game 7, it's by far the most iconic, I think, game in, in NHL history. I think you had, I want to say, 13... Potentially 14 Hall of Famers once Pavel Datsuk is inducted uh, in that series. You have 14 Hall of Famers, including Patrick Wan, Dominic Hasek, and Nett. And the Red Wings go out and they win that Game 7, 7-0. Um, so I'm waiting for my uh, my kind of deep dive onto Game 7 from 2002 because I don't think anyone's really done it justice. And we're almost 20 years out from that game. And there's just so many great quotes about it from Scotty Bowman saying... He told jokes before that game started. You've got Brett Hull talking about the being in the first period and the Wings are up 4 nothing, and they're all looking up the scoreboard and going, what is happening? That's the next game I think I need to see. All right, that's fair. That's a certainly a fair uh, – that's, that's a very good pitch. It's a, it's one of my favorite games. I'll actually still go and rewatch the highlights of it just because uh, I can still tell you exactly where I was. Uh, for some reason – uh, my dad decided we were going to order Hungry Howie's pizza. Huh. And Hungry Howie's was a little bit late in getting our order ready. So we thought we could get to Hungry Howie's and back before we missed anything. But we we actually left right after the first goal of the game scored, which is an unreal diving deflection by Thomas Holmstrom to, to deflect this puck over Patrick Waugh's shoulder. We leave right after that. And as we walk back into the door, it's Sergei Fedorov scoring to put the wings up 3 nothing, uh, in the first period. And I think only nine minutes has elapsed by then. And so it's just, it was an absolute chaotic game. I was remember, I remember listening to Ken Cal on the radio calling it as we were heading to Hungry Howie's and being so mad that I was not at home watching this happen. That's a really good memory. I always love when they're tied to like the the Hungry Howie's pizza delivery or something like that. I, I feel like I can remember uh, some big games in my life just by like foods, and I don't know what that says about me as a person, but but I certainly enjoy that. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, everything in my life is basically tied back to food. So uh, you know, I, if you want to know where I was and what I was eating for something, I got you. <laughs> All right. Uh, take a real quick break here to talk about the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible. Unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. 
Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suitor tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, shall we finish up with some questions here? Let's do it. What do we got today? You put out the call today. Yeah, so when I put out the call, I think half the questions are about bourbon and the mm-hmm. other half's about the draft. So I think that I think that sounds about right. I think one question That's your we, brand. I mean, that is my brand and I'm glad that it has gotten to the point where everyone understands my brand and, and we just kind of stick to it. But I do think there's a couple of draft questions in here that are that are worth interesting and then we'll we'll move on to the the alcohol-based questions. But so first Peter uh, at MVP96 asks us um, you know, do you think the draft will happen at the beginning of June? And if so, who would you take at number two? Kind of alluding to a little bit about what we talked uh, about earlier. So, Max, I guess part one is, do you think the NHL will actually put the draft before uh, the conclusion of the regular season? Um, my first reaction when hearing about it was, it, you know, it would be fine, but it sounded like, you know, a lot of hurdles to clear. But I don't know. The, the more that the more that it gets talked about, the, the the longer it seems to live before being declared dead. The more I think it seems plausible. What do you think? Yeah, I I think it's certainly plausible. Now, granted, you know, we did see the NFL draft go off, but that wasn't. And it's not like we asked for the NFL draft to go off before you know the playoffs ever started there. Um, and so now you're kind of asking the same thing to happen with some extra regular season games. It's almost like if you ask for these NFL draft to happen in week 14, uh, you're going to miss out on the last couple of, uh, you know, weeks of the regular season and potentially some, some reseeding issues. But that being said, I still think you could, uh, I still think the, the NHL is okay to execute the draft like we talked about in the last episode, um, you know, ahead of the re- regular season and ahead of the playoffs and kind of take it from there. And so, with that being said, is, is Quentin Byfield your number two? Yeah, he would be for me. And I, I think after that, you know, I think there's, there's, there's some debate after that, but I think it starts decidedly after. So if you, if your floor is at two, then you, you take Byfield and feel good about it. I do have a question for you about how you would handle two different things about the draft. Comp picks that are kind of conditional or sorry, not comp, conditional picks or, um, trades. Like to, to you, are either of those an unclearable hurdle, or is there an easy enough way to do them? You're talking about it like in the context of doing a virtual draft? In the context of doing it before the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tough. I think you'd have to go case by case on all of the conditions because, you know, what Max is alluding to is some teams will say, if we trade you this player and you and we trade you this pick, and with this player, we get past the second round. So, for example, think about the Mike Green conditions. It's I believe if Edmonton wins two playoff rounds and Mike Green plays greater than 50% of the games, then this pick is upgraded from, I believe it's a fourth round to a third round, if I'm remembering correctly, or a third to a second. Um, so it, it's kind of that aspect of it. I don't know how you could handle the conditional picks at the time of the draft. I'm not sure that there's an elegant way to do it 
because you're going to have to ultimately make those picks. The other option is you force all of those conditions to be applied to next year. And so, again, you'd have to ensure that the team has those picks for next year before you could even do that. So if they don't have a 2021 third, then they can't necessarily force that forward. Um, But I do think that's going to be an interesting aspect. And honestly, one thing you didn't mention, but is also related to that, is let's say the regular season is never concluded. What do you do about all the teams that traded draft picks for these players that they thought were going to be a part of playoff runs and now aren't? I mean, do you do it kind of like the NFL does with these extra compensatory picks? Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I, I'm really kind of out in left field here with how this would actually happen or how this would work. But I think the NFL has a lot of questions to answer uh, as it comes to how they're going to handle conditional picks, whether it's push the conditions to next year, strip the conditions from the picks, uh, you know, something along those lines. But there, there's there's a big uh, landmine there that the NHL is going to have to deal with. Yeah, especially because one of the deals with the compensatory picks is that it's a zero sum thing, and if you, so, if you're going to say, hey, you know, sorry, you didn't get to go to the playoffs, you know, here's a compensatory pick. Well, one of the reasons that you make a trade with a team is you're hoping that you're not just making yourself better, you're hoping that, like, a bad outcome is going to happen for them, right? So there is kind of a zero-sum aspect to that. One thing I thought of was, like, could you kind of marry those two ideas? And you could tell a team, okay, here's what we're going to do. You two teams made a deal with a conditional pick. Um, we'll, we'll either give you guys back-to-back picks or whatever, and you'll both get one, but then the loser of it, uh, or whoever, like, normally would, would have, would not have kind of conveyed the condition or whatever, would not have gotten the pick, loses that pick next year, um, if, if, if it doesn't work out, or you can come to an agreement. Could that something like that work? Kind of ask the teams to, to haggle that way over it? Yeah, I mean, potentially. I think, uh, I think that's one way to go about dealing with them. Uh, I think the other way is you maybe consider uh, redoing some aspect of how the NFL hands out compensatory picks, which is effectively if a team loses more value out than they bring in from a free agency standpoint, uh, you know, they hand out 32 different compensatory picks. I think another way is if you revisit each of the trades and kind of evaluate them in real time and say, all right, who ended up losing more value here and maybe you award a compensatory pick in that fashion. I'm not so sure how, but I, I think there's a couple of different ways you can can go about thinking to, to handle this. But ultimately, it's not going to be clean. You're probably going to have people upset by it, uh, and it's ultimately going to just have to happen if they want the draft to happen in June. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a situation where, like, I think almost no matter what happens, there is going to be a group of GMs who are getting the short end of it and a group of GMs who are can't believe their good luck. And if it happens the way that we've talked a lot about on this show where they do it early and they cap the lottery and, you know, it almost doesn't matter for the Red Wings what else the rules are. They're going to come out as one of the winners of the draft. But there's also teams who maybe they traded a conditional pick and the way it comes out is – you know they're going to catch the short end of that because they didn't get a playoff run with a rental player or or a shorter term. You know, let's say the guy had one year left, they're going to lose one of those two playoff runs they traded for him. Um, but that said, if the season comes back, I think it's a lot easier. If the season comes back, then you just say, you know, either there's comp picks or whatever, but at least you still got your playoff run. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I think I think ultimately, you know, this is an aspect that I hadn't 
really considered before, you know, we talked about the draft uh, on the last episode. And so just thinking about the logistics of all of this, I almost wonder if you have to make the decision on the league before you make the decision on the draft. I think and so. Ha- and you have to understand what you're going to do with all of these conditional picks. So, you know, for example, when we talk about that Mike Green conditional pick, just pulling it up, it's a fourth-round pick right now. But if Edmonton advances to the conference finals and Green plays in 50% of the games, that becomes a 2021 third-round pick, which if I'm Detroit, I want that third-round pick. I don't want the fourth-round pick this year. I'd rather have the future draft capital that could be as much as, you know, 30-plus, 40-plus spots higher than where I'm going to get it this year. So uh, you're going to have to make a decision on what you're going to do with those. Yeah. What if you could just deferred all conditions a year? I, uh, you said that earlier, and I think I kind of glazed past it, but that might be the best way to do it. Yeah, I, I kind of think that's the best way to go about it. I still have to sit and think on that a little bit more in terms of if you know how those ramifications are going to get held. And ultimately, pushing things forward uh, will be beneficial to all the teams that are getting those picks simply because more often than not, if you're thinking about conditions that are moved forward, right. a team is likely to be worse than as opposed to better um, in terms of the team that actually gave up those picks. Uh, so, you know, the team that got those picks may be getting even better picks now in a deal that that team wouldn't have necessarily made. So there's a lot of different ramifications associated with how this is going to be handled. But at the end of the day, that has to be decided before the NHL moves forward with their regular season. Yep. Yep, absolutely. All right. Any others for you want to wrap up? All right. So I think one other one, and this is going to be a great one to segue towards uh, – what I want you to ultimately do um, is from ham, so that's at H-A-M-M-A-F-E-R, what game do you wish you could have watched live or watch it again if you already saw it live, no team restrictions? That's a great one. I, I mean, the Miracle on Ice is the cheap answer. It's it's true, but it's too easy. Um Something from that, either the 97 Red Wings-Avs rivalry, could have been any of them, or it could have been prior to that, the, the legendary game where they basically made Patrick Waugh quit the Canadians. Is that what it was? Yeah, I mean the 11 nothing, or I think it was 11-1 is what the final was. Those would be my Red Wings-specific answers. Um, any like famous Nashville Predators game would have to enter the equation. I absolutely love the atmosphere at the Nashville arena. So if there's any if there's any like big playoff wins there, that would be high on my list. Maybe uh the Vegas San Jose game from last year's playoffs would have been unbelievable to be at live with with a long major penalty. Um I feel like I'm not being super imaginative here. What what do you got? Yeah, I mean the from a Red Wings specific standpoint, I think if I could have been in the building for any of these games, it would it would be the 2002 Game 7 against Colorado. Just thinking about the emotions that you would have in that arena where you're going, oh my God, this is Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals and Detroit's got, you know, eight Hall of Famers. Colorado's got, you know, four Hall of Famers and, and that's not including Pavel Datsuk. And, and now all of a sudden Detroit's just going, it's one nothing, two nothing, three nothing, four nothing. Uh, and you're going, wow, it's four nothing at the end of the first period. Just that level of disbelief you're going to have. 
Then the second period starts, and it's just it's more of the same. It's five nothing, six nothing, and then Patrick Waz pulled, and you're just like, we, just, uh, you're just like, what is going on? Patrick Waz been pulled, and then you get the seven nothing goal on a just crazy tic tac toe play that results in a Pavel Datsyuk one timer goal, and just the pandemonium that would have kind of ensued there because you know if you were if you put yourself back in that time frame. The Red Wings, you know, they beat Colorado and they kind of took care of their demons in 97. And they didn't have to go through them in 98. But then 99, 2000, 2001, Detroit kind of fell off. And in that time frame, Colorado got a a Ray Bork Stanley Cup uh, when he was able to join them. And so then in 2002, you're going and it's just like, man, we haven't been successful in the playoffs in a really long time. This is a Detroit team that's lacking a lot of confidence. It would have been amazing to be in that building and see Detroit just pull that off. I think outside of, you know, Detroit specific games, I think there's a plethora of games you could think about. I think obviously the Miracle on Ice game is an outstanding one just given how it was not really televised live and then all of a sudden that information started to disseminate across the, the country in terms of what the Team USA was able to accomplish against the Soviet Union. I think that's an outstanding game to, to really uh, say that you were at. Really, any of the games, um, you know, I think for me from uh, the the mid-90s with kind of uh, the Gretzky Blues, I think would have been really interesting being against uh, those games against the Red Wings and just... Seeing because a lot of people forget how good those like 95, 96 and really 94, 95, uh, St. Louis Blues were with guys like Gretzky and Shanahan and Brett Hall. I mean, it was just like, that was an absolutely loaded team. Those would have been fun games to watch. Uh, you know, and then beyond that, I think there's a lot of really memorable hockey games that you could have been at. I think the, the Penguins five overtime game would have just been like, man, this is, this is an unbelievable hockey game that you're at right now. And I think it finishes 6-5 if I remember it correctly. So those are just a couple that I think of. Yeah, those are some good answers. If you were at the 1980 game, are you rushing to the nearest payphone to call everyone you know and tell them what you just saw? Or are you going to let them wait and watch it uh, watch it on, on tape delay and experience it that way? I'm always the person that just like after – I watch a sporting event like that that I can tell is monumental and just going to have these huge impacts and ramifications. I don't really reach out to anybody. I just kind of soak it in. Yeah. And so I can certainly see what I would have done if, you know, me at my 29-year-old self right now, if I was at that game, I'd have headed to the nearest bar and I'd have grabbed a glass of bourbon and I would have just sat there and enjoyed it. That's the right answer. I don't know what I would have done, but that's the right answer. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, whenever I, I see these games and I watch these games, and for me, I haven't really been able to watch one of those games since I've been of, you know, legal drinking age to new. But that's my go-to move whenever just something big happens in my life right now is I'm going to sit down. You know, my wife's going to sit on the couch next to me. My dog's going to sit on my lap. I'm going to grab a glass of bourbon, and, and I'm just going to sit there and enjoy it. One of the wonderful things about being a sports writer is this might be kind of an expected thing to say, but like you're never like you have like the clearest memories of these things because at least in my experience, like the Michigan Ohio State JT Barrett game, I was covering that 
um, the the one where he, you know was he or was he not short? And I I was on the field like perfect angle for it. Um, I personally I did not think he got it uh, live, but um, the memory is so clear because you're you're like you're so focused and also you haven't had anything to drink. Like the difference between like my friend's college football memories and mine are that I had not had a drop of alcohol the entire day. I think that's a fun thing about it too, and I think from a similar perspective, what you're saying, you're really taking it in. Sometimes it's more frantic because you're not like, you know, you're not necessarily in fan mode. You're not in fan mode, and you're not necessarily being able to just kind of sit back and take it in. You have to work. Sometimes you can lose things in games typing, but when you're able to really lock in, you get these clear, vivid memories from locker rooms and stuff like that. And man, it would have been an incredible thing to be in the in the 1980 locker room after that game. I mean, I completely agree, and, and that's honestly part of the reason why, like, you know, in, in years past, I've had the opportunity to get media passes and, and sit up there and enjoy it, but I can't do what you guys do. I mean, you guys just do such a phenomenal job of being able to internalize your emotions, catalog what's happening, and then be able to get those reactions out of people in those environments, and that's just not something I can do. And so I would rather sit in the stands and be like, yeah, let me enjoy this and have just an absolute different experience than you, but ultimately one that ends with me sitting, reflecting, and then the next day reading what you guys were able to kind of elicit. So, uh, you know, kudos to what you guys do. And, and honestly, I think there's so many great games you could go back and, and watch and catalog and detail and just get all of those tidbits out and, and kind of tell a great story. It is interesting when you kill your fandoms how much you can still appreciate just in completely different ways, not better, not worse, just completely, just different. You know, like, like, I don't know how much my friends like hearing me say that, like, you know, being on the field at, at Ohio stadium, you completely understand why, why they get the best recruits in the country, like in the country, like you stand down there and it's unbelievable. Like the best sports atmosphere I've ever been at is the horseshoe. And I don't know if Michigan fans like hearing me say that, but it's unbelievable, you know, and, and you just appreciate things like that, that, you know, in the moment you're probably, you know, if, if you're a Michigan fan, you're walking out of there and you're mad about the result. But, you know, at some point you got to be able to appreciate kind of the, the history to it too. And I think that's a fun thing. Um, whenever you get the opportunities to just appreciate the history, like you're saying, uh, I think, I think that often uh, goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I'm a I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel. I've been a Tar Heel my whole life, and uh, you know, since I've been going to school and obviously got all of my degrees, and I still work and live here. That being said, you want to know why people go to Duke? It's that environment, it's that atmosphere, and so when you get those reporters down there who get to tell the story from being in Cameron Indoor at a crazy game where you've got you know two thousand of the most raucous fans just giving it to you. Uh, I get it. It makes sense. And, and so it's just, you know, sports are great, man. They are. I miss them. All right. We'll get back to this in the middle of this week. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in as always. We really appreciate it. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll talk to you then.